Lord, uh, you did declare from that cross that it is finished. Lord, you have paid our sin debt in full. There's nothing left um, to do. There's no more to be paid. Uh, you paid it all, Lord Jesus, on that cross. And Lord, we know that you paid it all, not simply because you said you did, but because you rose from the dead, Lord. Um, if you had not paid it all, you would still be dead, but you're not. You're alive, which means you've paid all of our sins, Lord. You've paid the price for all of it, and we thank you and we, we praise you for that. And Lord, we, we desire to know you. We desire to know your love for us. We desire to grow in our love for you, Lord. And we pray that as we come to your word, that uh, you would cause that to happen. Lord, we pray that you would, through your word, um, just continue to give us a heart that is wholly devoted to you. Lord, any who are here um, today who don't know you yet, who have not turned from their sin and put their trust in Jesus Christ alone to save them and rule them, Lord, we pray that you would take your word, your spirit would take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, Lord, that you would grant them the gift of repentant faith so that they would look to Christ and run to him in faith for salvation. And Lord, those of us that do know you, so often we feel our hearts are cold toward you, not as vibrant toward you or passionate about you as, as they ought to be, Lord. May you, through your word, awaken our hearts, Lord. May you grow us in our love for you and our devotion to you, Father. Uh, we thank you that you have begun a good work in us and that you will be faithful to carry it on to completion until the day when Christ comes again, Lord. So please bless our time in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Luke 24, and we're looking at verses 36 through 49. And I read for us verses 1 through 35, and let me go ahead and read verses 36 through 49 of Luke 24. Now while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace to you. But being startled and frightened, they were thinking that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still not believing because of their joy and were still marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it before them. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Did the resurrection of Christ really happen? If it did, that is a life-changing 
reality. It would mean that everything Jesus said about himself was true, and that every single demand he makes upon our lives is absolutely legitimate, and we are without excuse whatsoever to refuse to totally surrender our entire life to him. If, on the other hand, he did not rise from the dead, then he really has no claim upon our lives, and we can eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Well, what did the apostles think? Did they believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead? Because if they did, then we would expect that their lives would have been radically changed because of that reality. And when we look at the lives of the apostles, that is, in fact, what we see. We can see the change that the resurrection made in their lives. If you would turn back to Mark, his gospel, chapter 14, starting in verse 27, there we see Jesus telling his disciples ahead of time that they would all abandon him. Mark 14, verse 27. Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that today, this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing also. And of course, when Jesus told them that they would all fall away, they all denied it. They said, no, we would rather die than leave you, abandon you. But look at what happens when we come to verse 50. Starting in verse 43 through 49, we see Jesus being betrayed. We see a a big crowd of soldiers coming with swords and clubs to arrest Jesus. And what do the disciples do? Verse 50, And they all left him and fled. And a young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. So that is the apostles before the resurrection. After Jesus' resurrection, we find a very different picture of the apostles because now every single one of them is willing and actually does die for Jesus Christ for the most part. I think John was the only apostle that died a natural death, but even he was exiled. For example, you don't have to turn here, but Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, we see James executed with a sword for his faith in the risen Christ. He was the first of the apostles to be martyred. And in their letters, both Peter and Paul speak of impending martyrdom, and they are not shrinking away from it. And according to church tradition, Peter would be crucified upside down, and Paul would have his head cut off at the command of Emperor Nero. And when we come to the book of Revelation, we see the apostle John exiled on the island of Patmos because of his testimony for Jesus Christ. And church tradition claims that all the other apostles were martyred for their faith in various ways in the nations 
to whom they brought the gospel. Why this change? These apostles were so convinced that Jesus rose from the dead that to a man each of them were willing to die violent deaths, whereas before they were not willing. So the first question we should ask is, what convinced them that Jesus had risen, convinced them so thoroughly that they were willing to have their heads cut off, willing to be nailed to crosses? What convinced them? And the second question is, will that be enough to convince us today? And in Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 49, we're going to see what convinced these men. And along the way, we will consider whether or not that should convince us. And so we're going to split this passage up into two sections. First, verses 36 to 43, we're going to see the penultimate proof. What does that mean? Penultimate, almost ultimate. Not ultimate, almost ultimate. And then, verses 44 to 49, we're going to look at the ultimate proof. And again, the emphasis is on the ultimate proof, all right? So we're going to see the penultimate proof. It's a sensory proof. They received evidence through their senses, the apostles did. And again, the context for this passage is what I read for our scripture reading in verses 1 through 35. The two disciples who were on the road to Emmaus, they turned around and they've come back after their encounter with the risen Christ and they're sharing what they saw. Now look at verse 36. It says, Now while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace to you. We get the sense here that Jesus did not knock on the door and wait for somebody to let him in. We get the sense that the disciples did not hear his footsteps as he approached, entered the house, and then came up into the room. He just appeared out of nowhere. And the parallel passage in John chapter 20, verse 19, says that the doors were shut for fear of the Jews. Jesus did not open any doors in order to gain entry to that room. And so even though Jesus had just pronounced his peace to these disciples, they're terrified, they're frightened, because they think that they are seeing a spirit or a ghost. That's what it says in verse 37. Being startled and frightened, they were thinking that they were seeing a spirit. Why might they think that? Well, first of all, Jesus had just died a couple days ago. Second, even though according to verses 33 to 35, they've arrived at the conclusion that he did rise from the dead, the way that Jesus came into that room might have them second-guessing this conclusion that they'd arrived at. Because people with bodies generally cannot materialize into the middle of a room like that. I know they can in Star Trek, but not in real life. So you can see how they would be thinking that, oh, maybe Jesus is still dead, and what we're seeing is his spirit, a ghost. And that would be quite scary. Any one of us would be startled and frightened. So look at how Jesus responds in verse 38. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts 
arise in your hearts? What kind of doubts were arising in their hearts? Well, doubts that he really has been resurrected. Doubts that the Jesus standing in front of them is alive, body and soul. That's what they're doubting. And notice what Jesus does next in response to their doubts. He doesn't stand at a distance demanding that they pull themselves together and scream at them for their frail faith. No, he holds out his hands to them. And he says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. He invites the disciples to examine him, to touch him. A week later, as recorded in John chapter 20, verse 27, Jesus would invite the one disciple who happened not to be there that, that day, Thomas. He invited Thomas to put his finger into the nail prints in his hands, and he invited him to stick his hand into the spear wound in his side. And he would say to Thomas, be not unbelieving, but believing. Jesus wanted these disciples to feel his skin and to feel the muscles and the bone beneath his skin so that they would be convinced that what they saw was not a ghost, not a spirit. He was alive, body and soul, back from the dead. Listen to what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 1. In verse 1, he says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. They touched him. They handled him. And when they did that, their hands didn't pass through him like he was a ghost, like trying to catch the wind. No, they, they were able to lay hold of him. In Matthew's Gospel, Chapter 28, verse 9, when the resurrected Jesus greeted the women as they were racing back from the tomb to share what they'd heard, what did they do? They fell and worshipped him and they grabbed a hold of his feet. They were able to grasp his feet. And in John chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus told Mary Magdalene, stop what? Stop clinging to me. She was able to hold him. He was not a ghost, a disembodied spirit. Verse 41 says that, back in Luke 24, And while they still were not believing because of their joy and were still marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? Despite being able to touch them, that doesn't seem to be quite enough for the disciples. They still cannot believe what they're seeing. They're not quite able to accept what their senses are telling them. This sensory proof that they have is not quite enough. So Jesus gives them another proof to show them that they're not dreaming. They're not hallucinating. They're not seeing a vision. This is real life. Verse 42. Well, first he asks, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of a broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. And when he ate it, the fish didn't plop onto the ground as he stuck it into his mouth. This is Jesus. He is alive. 
That's the first proof, the penultimate proof, the evidence that they were gathering through their senses. But Jesus didn't leave it at that. He didn't simply let them touch him, eat a meal with them, and then send them off to tell others what they saw. No, they needed a lot more than that. He sought to anchor their experience to the scriptures. What Jesus is going to tell them in the next several verses is what would make their faith unshakable. Just seeing Jesus alive from the dead was not enough. What the disciples needed was to see that the scriptures, the word of God, had foretold that this is what would happen. God himself had said in his inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient word that what they were experiencing was indeed what God had already said would happen centuries and millennia before the fact. And this brings us to the ultimate proof. It's a scriptural proof. This is very important because our senses can deceive us. We ought never to place our faith on bare experience, either our experience or the experiences of others. Our faith can only grow in the soil of God's word. That's the only place faith grows. Romans 10, verse 17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Remember Jesus' parable about the rich man and Lazarus. Turn back with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16. In that parable, Jesus talked about a rich man and a poor man. The poor man's name was Lazarus. And eventually, Lazarus, the poor man whom the rich man did not seek to help, that poor man died and was carried away to Abraham's bosom, to paradise. And the rich man also died. But the rich man found himself burning in hell. And while he's there burning, he pleads with Abraham to send Lazarus back from the grave to his brothers so that his brothers will not suffer the same fate as he was suffering. Now look at chapter 16, starting in verse 29. Look at how Abraham responds to this request from the rich man. But Abraham said about his brothers, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Sensory proof is not enough. It wasn't going to be enough for the disciples to simply see the resurrected Jesus with their eyes, touch him with their own hands, or experience the joy of sharing a meal with him. They needed to know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the word of God said that this was going to happen. Because at the end of the day, that is the only foundation that our faith can stand upon. The word of God. So, verse 44 in Luke 24. Now he said to them, 
These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus here refers to the entire Old Testament, which was divided up into three sections, the law, the prophets, and the writings, which included Psalms. And during Jesus' ministry, this is what he had repeatedly told the disciples. He had repeatedly told them that he was going to suffer and die and then rise again in accordance with the scriptures. For example, back in Luke 22 and verse 37, Jesus told his disciples, For I tell you that this which is written must be completed in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He's quoting from Isaiah 53. For that which refers to me has its completion. He told them things like this repeatedly throughout his ministry. Why? Because the disciples needed to understand that the resurrected Messiah was not some newfangled idea. It was not some new religion that they then had to go and sell people. Say, I got this new thing for you. Please listen to me and believe it. No, this is, this is that old-time religion. This is what the faith always was. This is what the word of God said needed to happen. The Messiah needed to come and pay for the sins of his people and rise from the dead and then bring in the kingdom. It's what the word of God always said. And the disciples needed to understand that beyond the shadow of a doubt. They needed to understand that the resurrected Messiah is the Messiah that the word of God had promised all along. And verses 45 through 47 tell us how he proceeded to give them that understanding, to remove those doubts. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus enabled his disciples to understand what the scriptures said. How did he do that? Well, surely this involved him supernaturally opening their, their minds to understand what the Spirit of God wrote in the Word of God. And we all need that because apart from the Spirit of God illuminating our hearts to understand what His Word is saying, it's like God is speaking to a brick wall. We don't get it. We don't understand. We cannot wrap our arms around it. It's only when the Holy Spirit opens our minds and enables us to see what was right in front of us the whole time. Surely that is what the Lord is doing here. But it also appears that this opening of their minds also involved him teaching the scriptures to them. Verse 46 seems to indicate that to us when it says, And he said to them, Thus it is written. Him opening their minds to understand involved going over those very things that had been written. And in fact, we saw this process earlier in the chapter when Jesus encountered the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Verses 25 to 27. Remember what happened there. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? 
Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. That must have been quite an experience for those two disciples. And they described that experience for us. In verse 32, they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was opening? Same Greek word as in verse 45, when he opened their minds. He said, while he was opening the scriptures to us. And according to verse 46, what did Jesus show them from those scriptures? That the Christ would suffer, which is what most of the Jews could not accept from the word of God, and it's why they rejected Jesus. So he's showing them, this is what the scripture said would the, the Messiah would be. He would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Now, where are these things in the scriptures? Well, there are many scriptures we could go to in order to demonstrate this, but I only have time to give you a few references for each of the items that Jesus lists here. I invite you to write them down and look them up later and come see me if you want more, because there's much more. Where does the Old Testament talk about the fact that Messiah would suffer? Well, Psalm 22, verses 1 through 18 describes in detail what Jesus as the son of David, the Messiah, suffered in going to the cross. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 9, say that, or says that Messiah, the servant of the Lord, would suffer and die for the sins of his people. And regarding the Messiah's resurrection, that same chapter in Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 10 through 12, says that Though this Messiah would die, yet he would see his offspring. He would prolong his days. A dead man doesn't have any days to prolong. And he would be rewarded greatly by God. Things that this Messiah would only be able to enjoy if, in fact, he rose from the dead. In Psalm 16 and verse 10, David foretold that God would not allow his Holy One to undergo decay. And we know he's speaking of the Messiah because David is dead and rotting in a tomb somewhere. But not the Messiah. Turn with me, if you would, to Hosea. It's right after Daniel, which is right after Ezekiel. Hosea chapter 6. The Messiah is often in Scripture identified with his people, identified with the very ones he came to save. For example, we see this in Isaiah where the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, is addressed as Israel. He's identifying, he's representative of his people. And keeping that in mind, listen to Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, where the people are saying this to the Lord. Come, let us return to Yahweh, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has struck us, but he will bandage us. He will make us alive after two days. 
he will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. When Jesus rose on the third day, he, rose, he raised his people up along with him. He redeemed them from sin and death. What about proclaiming repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations? Not just Judah and Israel, but to all nations. Well, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, that records God the Messiah, or God addressing the Messiah, saying, It is too small a thing for you that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. These are things the scriptures promised about the Messiah. The, the Jews at that time were hung up on the idea that he would bring in the kingdom. They were so hung up on that that they totally disregarded other scriptures that said the Messiah had to suffer and die for his people. Because in their minds, those two things can't be true. But the resurrection makes them true. He died on behalf of his people and he is risen again so that he can bring in that kingdom. The resurrection had to happen. The scriptures are clear on that. And there are a host of other passages in the Old Testament telling us who the Messiah would be and how we could recognize him. In fact, there's a prophecy in Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, that tells us the precise time period in which the Messiah would come and reveal himself as the prince of his people. And who happened to show up at that time? Jesus Christ. He was the only one claiming to be the king at that time. The only person who fits all of these prophecies exactly is Jesus Christ. It cannot possibly be anybody else. And that's what the disciples needed to understand. That's what they needed their faith to be founded upon. Back in Luke 24, verse 48, Jesus says, You are witnesses of these things. Witnesses not simply of Jesus rising from the dead, but witnesses that Jesus rose from the dead in fulfillment of all that the scriptures say about the Messiah. That's why when we go to the book of Acts and we read the sermons of Peter and Paul, we don't just see them saying what they saw and saying, take my word for it. They say, this is what we saw, and the scriptures said that this would happen. Jesus is the one that the scriptures Talk about, look at the scriptures and see that he is the one. Believe in him. And then verse 49, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus has equipped his disciples with the truth, and he says he's going to send the Holy Spirit to empower them to wield that truth as his witnesses. They say that seeing is believing, but that's just not true. The disciples saw Jesus alive with their own eyes. They touched him with their own hands. They shared meals with him. And we often long to have been there that day, 
We think, oh, if only I was there. If only I could have seen him. If only I could have touched him. Then all of my doubts would be answered, and I wouldn't doubt anymore. But that's not true. The disciples saw him. They touched him. They ate with him, and they still doubted. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, what does it say there? Matthew 28, verse 16 But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Seeing is not enough. If you are relying on what you can see with your eyes and what you can feel with your hands to convince you, you will never be convinced. You can go to all the apologetic arguments, and you should, that's good, But that will never be enough to get you to cross the line from unbelief into belief. Abraham said to the rich man, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. You know you cannot always trust what you perceive with your senses. But there is something that you can trust that you don't need to question. You can trust the word of God. The Bible. The Bible was written by the one true God who cannot lie. And he told us beforehand, centuries, millennia, of who this Messiah would be, when he would come, what he would do when he did come. And the New Testament tells us who that person is who did what the Scriptures said he would do. Points points him out for us, clear as day. Listen to what Peter, an eyewitness to the resurrection, says in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 16. He says, speaking to those he's writing to, For we did not make known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't make it known to you following clearly devised myths, but being eyewitnesses of his majesty. And in verse 17 to 18, he goes on to describe an experience he had on the Mount of Transfiguration. Listen to what he says. For when he received... Honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter saw the blinding glory of Jesus. He heard the booming voice of God speaking from heaven. But look at what he says in verse 19. He says, And we have as more sure the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. There was something more sure than Peter's experience on that mountain, and it was the word of God. 
There's something more sure than our experiences, and that something is the Word of God. And if you're here this morning and you are unable to accept that Jesus is who he says he is, you need to go to this book. You need to read this book. And you need to ask God to open the scriptures to you. You need him. Otherwise, you're not going to understand anything that you read here. You're not going to connect the dots. You're not going to see Jesus. So ask God to open the scriptures to you. Ask for help from believers who know this book and who can walk you through this book and can point you to where your questions can be answered. And when you have seen, by God's grace, when you have seen that Jesus is who he said he is, then look at what he did on the cross to take the place of sinners, to pay the death penalty for them. Look at how he rose from the dead, just as the scriptures said he would, and believe that he did that. Turn from your sins. Put your trust in him alone to save you. And when you do that, he will forgive you, and he will give eternal life to you. And he's able to do that because he is the one true God incarnate. He is the resurrection and the life. When Thomas felt and saw Jesus, he exclaimed, My Lord and my God. And in response, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. We have all the proof we need, the ultimate scriptural proof in the scriptures. Let's pray.